Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, summertime has ended. We're now entering Q4. Can you believe it? It's almost 2020. The decade is almost over. It's crazy. Today, we have one of my favorite episodes ever. Our guest has over three decades as a successful trader or investor and is one of the original pioneers of systematic trend-following trading. He co-founded Men Investment Management and led the firm to creating one of the industry's first commodity trading advisors, CTAs, and I believe was the first to manage over a billion dollars. He then went on to start his own family office where he directs his own investments, continues his research into the field of systematic trading. He's the author of the new book, and believe me, you need to read this book, The Rule, How I Beat the Odds in the Markets and in Life, and How You Can Too. On top of all that, he's one of the original market wizards. Please enjoy my conversation today with Larry Height. What was the origin for you becoming a trend follower? You know, I, you listen to Warren Buffett and others say he was like inoculated at birth on being a value guy. Was was there a moment you can look back onto? Because And I'd love to talk a little bit about your history um, of an ev- evolution as a trader, but... Was, was there a moment when you said, I get it, trend following is sort of a bug that bit you, or was it a kind of gradual process? Do you, uh, do, do you recall? It seemed like a really a natural process, literally. I mean, think about it. Are you single? No, married. Okay. Well, when you met your wife, you were attracted to her. You thought she was good looking, whatever it was. A personality, it didn't matter. As you got to know her, you found more things you liked in her. So you spent more time with her. And then all that time was like putting love in a bank. And then the dividends came. Children, the relationship deepened. Well, all of life works that way. And it also works in reverse. Because if you, if you went out on a date and the person really was annoying you, just deep down inside, the voice was terrible. The body might have been great, but the voice was ugh, like scratching nails on a chalkboard. You're not going to go for a second date. And everything in your life runs that way. It's a feedback loop. And all trend following does is cash in on that feedback loop. You know, it's fun, funny, this analogy, because if you look at people in life, many people don't cut their losses, whether it's relationships, whether it's being stuck in job situations. And a lot of that leads to <laughs> quite a bit of unhappiness. So, I mean, not, not, not just from a por- portfolio perspective, but you see people that for whatever reason, whatever psychological reason, they continue to 
want to believe that the situation will improve and they continue to just go down a roller coaster straight down on whatever it may be, job, career, relationships, marriages. You see it a lot though. But it's funny because, you know, you think about trend following in general too, it applies to so many other areas of finance that I think people don't think about. And we often talk a lot about the venture capital world as in many ways a, a trend following perspective. Now they're Stop loss is just the companies go to zero or they, uh, you know, they, they exit at some point, but they're really buying and, and holding the big, huge winners that are 10, 100,000 baggers in some sense, and they don't sell them until. And a lot of the stock investors we talk about, they never end up holding the, the long-term investments. Anyway, there's a lot of parallels in life, and I think that's a wonderful insight. Did you read uh, The Origin of the Species by Darwin? I, I don't think I've read the original text, but I was actually in a previous life. Uh, I was a biology biotech guy as a coming out of university, so I definitely have some grounding there, but I've never read the original text. What it really is, trend following and evolutionary biology are kind of the same thing. Because what happens is species adjust to the environment. And that's what you have to do to have a successful life. When Darwin said, it's the, he didn't say it's the strongest animal. He meant, he, he used the term, physical term, the best, the fittest. And what he meant was not how many push-ups you could do. What he meant was, what kind of environment are you living in and how fit are you for that environment? Very important. So it may be called trend following, but it goes back to biology. It goes back to biomechanics. And it's very important that people understand that this is a natural process. David Ricardo, very few of David's things about trading were ever committed to print. But he had one line that said, cut your losses and let the winners take care of themselves. Well, over the years, I revised that. And I will give you, I, I don't know, you think anybody interested in making money? Yeah, yeah, everyone. And, and by the way, listeners, David Ricardo was a economist from 18th century. Yes. David made a fortune as a speculator. But his, his rule was, when in doubt, get out quickly. Now, I've amended that rule, that... Let's say you start out, you want to trade 10 things. As they hit the stops, you take the money out, but you put it into the rest of the list that's winning. You rank that. And you'll find out you'll get not only rich, but you'll get richer than most of your peers. Because you're always going from losers to winners. And that's a really major advantage. And the markets allow you to, in fact, losses are actually quite good for the trader because he builds up a cushion for his profits to come. So it's very tax efficient. 
it makes sense to you now. You know, you're one of the most successful trend followers of all time. But do, do you remember a point at which, because I came to it, I was a biology guy, I was a fundamental discretionary trader, made all the mistakes in the world, you know, painful mistakes, one after another trading, until eventually arrived at trend following by, you know, <laughs> by eliminating every other possible terrible way to invest. And, and then it really made sense to me, but it wasn't out of the get-go. You know, was it a similar situation for you? Because I'm an LA guy, and I know that you started out as a actor screenwriter. So at some point you had to make the transition, I imagine. <laughs> Let me explain it a bit. By the way, were you a good athlete? I was decent at a, like a high school level, not at a uh, college pro level. Okay. My point is I was blind and I'm dyslexic. So I am used to living with failure. That's what I know. So I would never let failure get in my way. If I wanted something bad enough, I found a way around it. And that's what you got to do. You want to weed out the things that you can't do because you don't have an edge. And you want to include those things that give you a lot of enjoyment or you make a lot of money or both. And that struck me is just the way it mathematically would work. It seems it, it seems when you put it that way that it's so obvious. And so, you know, as, as you started the career trading, and by the way, the book, listeners, it's called The Rule, How I Beat the Odds in Markets and Life and How You Can Too, is really a wonderful book. We spent some time with it this past week. And it talks about Larry's evolution, you know, where it wasn't a traditional Wall Street path that you would have today. You know, we're going back to the 19, late 1960s, I believe, early 70s. Mm -hmm. Wall Street's a little different place. I mean, hey, today they were announcing every major brokerage announcing free commissions. That probably probably wasn't the case when when you got started. No, very expensive. But you started as a, do I, do I get this right? Was it a commodity broker or a stock broker? I started, I had to be a stock broker, but I wanted to be a commodity trader. That's what I really wanted because that struck me where I could get richer faster. And I love the concept of stops. I think stops make all that I, I'm now sitting on Central Park South. I have a view going straight up the park north. I was born in a three-room three apartment in Brooklyn. And I looked at a cement wall. Now I look at the Central Park going up. That's from my living room. When I'm sitting at a desk I work on, I'm going the other way. So I got what I got because I decided I had to stay alive. I'm a very functional person. And then I thought, well, how could I do this? And I and I went. I got to the library, I looked over hundreds of years of data, and the one thing I found was cutting your losses and letting your winners run really works. It really actually works. Do you have access to a computer? Of course. You have a database, right? Of course. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I made people do. When Alex Grayson was... Our chief investment 
computer guy. So the first thing I want to do is I want to write a program that we go into the market randomly. We have a number generator, and it's set, and there's like 20 things lined up. It says which ones it goes, and then another random generator will say if it's a long or short. Well, people thought it was nuts, but I said, no, I want to do this. And I found out that it was a very good way to make money. Then those cutting your losses and letting your winners run is magic. And so I've amplified that. I use options. I use spreads. But all in the service of reducing my risk and making more money. In the book, you, you talk about this in sort of four ways and in stops and riding your winners. I think it, it sounds so simple and obvious to us as trend followers, but a lot of people, that's somewhat of a counterintuitive idea. And, and in the book, you say, look, there's four foundational principles I apply to get them into the game of money and game of life. And I was just going to read the first couple, but, but first is get in the game in the first place. Two was don't lose all your chips because then you can't bet. Three was know the odds and four, cut your losers and run with your winners. But let's talk about two for a second, which is don't lose all your chips. Because what you mentioned, I I think, is something that is what takes so many people out of this game where it's either position sizing about how much they bet or the fact that they're just willing to ride a losing position all the way down to zero. And in many ways, this freedom of saying, I'm agnostic, I don't care, at some point I'm out and I'm done, but I'm going to live to survive another day. Maybe talk a little bit about this sort of foundational principles of yours. I, I think it's a really important philosophy, whether you're a trend follower or not. I don't have to be in any... You know what the one advantage of the stock market is? The one real advantage? You don't have to play. Right? If you go into a poker game, you got to put up money before it begins. you got to throw something in the pot. So it costs you money if you leave. You threw it in the pot. Here, you, you have the ability to choose under what conditions you play, how you play, and where you play. That's a very bad, and you get that for free. Nobody's standing there and say, hey, you can't just stand here and do nothing. But when you're looking at those prices, they come out and they come right on your set, and you just go look at them. You don't have to do anything. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to make you do anything. That's a, an enormous edge. If you could... Only bet when you have an edge. That's really good. That's a much better. If you can get a little bit behind the guy you're fighting so that your hit comes from behind his head, he's not going to see it. So you got to look for what does this situation mean? And I didn't mean that in a negative way. Come from by, but you want to be in the best position for you. You may use options, you may use buying shares, you whatever. You can you can come up with a configuration 
that puts the odds in your favor. You can't do that in any casino, really. But you as an investor, by yourself, you can set the ground rules. And that's really a lot. That's an enormous advantage. So you don't want to throw that advantage away. No one says you have to play, but when you play, you want to make sure that you are creating an asymmetrical bet. What do I mean by that? Asymmetrical bet is most, when you talk about leverage, right? People assume the more you leverage, the more you get. That's not always true. Sometimes you can find a position or work to a position where your downside is very truncated, but your upside is immense. And that's what the markets give you. But you have to be on the lookout for it, and you have to want it. This concept of edge, I think, is so important. You know, you mentioned in the book a very foundational book of Ed Thorpe and some of his ideas on beat the dealer and beat the markets. We, we were blessed to have Ed on the podcast as well. You know, but, but you talk about something that I think is so important to investors because they get so caught up in the stories of the day. I can't tell you how many people feel like they have to have an opinion on Tesla stock or they have to f- have an opinion or a position on Bitcoin. And I say to these people, there's tens of thousands of securities around the world. You don't have to have an opinion on each one. You don't have to have an opinion at all. You don't have to play. You can really only play when you feel like you have a true edge. And, and I feel like that's really hard for people. You talk in the book about a, a concept that is really interesting because we often say it's important to be asset class or investment agnostic. And I'm, I may get this wrong, so please correct me. But you said something along the lines of, I don't trade various commodities. I'm trading money. What, what, what did yes. you mean by that? And please correct me on the actual uh, verbiage. No, 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 no. You came very close. I trade risk. I'm looking for the lowest risk to get the highest return. So it's a situational thing. People think there are two kinds of bets. Bets win, bets lose. But there really are four kinds of bets. There are good bets, there are bad bets. That's two kinds of bets. But a good bet puts you in a position that if you're risking a dollar, you make $12 when you win. That's important. That you can do with options a lot. You, although you are not the casino, you're using the markets to invent your own casino. You don't want to take any bet that's a bad bet. You want to make 10 times the risk with a 50% chance of being right. That's what you want. You don't care how beautiful the girl at the table is at the casino, but you're looking at the money and you're looking at the expected value. This concept of sort of process and outcome is, is something we talk a lot about, you know, good bets, bad bets, winning bets, losing bets. And, you know, the worst thing, I always tell people, the young traders, the best thing that could ever happen to you as a young trader is you make a bet, whatever it is, and you just you lose a fair amount of money when you don't have much because that teaches a lot of lessons. <laughs> you know, one may be the very real pain of losing money, but also the worst thing that could happen to you is probably making 
a nonsense bet and having a huge, wonderful outcome because then you believe that you, you sort of confuse all of this with process and outcome. And- You're absolutely right. I was working in a firm and the guy who was running the firm for a very wealthy family, he had screwed up what he was going to do. It turned out now he was in a very bad position. So he called in different people. And I, I was one of the guys he called in, and they said, well, what would you do, Larry? And I said, first loss is the best loss. Well, he did not follow my advice. And he won. And I turned to a friend of mine who was working there. I said, oh, my God, this is the end of this firm. We're going to need another job. Because this guy now found out that he just went through a minefield with his eyes closed. So he's going to go every time he gets to a minefield, he's going to close his eyes real tight. And then he's going to blow up. And that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened to this guy. Because keeping your eyes off the ball just doesn't help. That was a luck shot that worked but more or less guaranteed not to work. If you don't know the risks you're taking, the market will tell you. And you won't like how it tells you. You have time for a story? We got all the time in the world. So I have this cousin of mine. He's not brilliant. He decided he, he liked Merrill Lynch at the bottom, and so he loses all his money. He, he One bet, and then... He goes out and he borrows another $10,000. Really quite amazing. And he comes back to me and he said, well, how much did you lose? He said, 110. I said, no. I said, you can't lose 110 because you only have $100,000. And so with options, you can't lose more than you put in. And he said, well, you know, yeah. I said, what? He said, well, I borrowed another $10,000 because it got so low, I only needed to go up like a nickel, and I would have made four times my entire investment. And he, I remember he said to me, I'm going to make a killing. And I said, there's going to be a killing. You're not going to like the face on the killing floor. I think this is something that people learn eventually. Hopefully, it's when they don't have a lot of money, but there's so many things going on. Uh, you know, at the poker table, people often call it, you know, going on tilt. When you, when you start to lose money, positions going against you. Often cases, people lose all rationality. They start to bet aggressively. They start to, in this case, feel like you have to double down. And, you know, this was a good case of value investors in the financial crisis that, that took a lot of value investors out to the woodshed where they kept doubling down on a lot of these value investments that eventually just went, went to zero. And many of these value funds lost 70, 80% uh, and never recovered. And the nice thing about being having a trend methodology is you're gone at some point. <laughs> you're, you live yeah. to play another day, which uh, is probably the, the most important rule in all of investing is, is at least you survive. And 
uh, not only he compounded the problem by borrowing money <laughs> and making it worse. Right. We have this, there's a whole myth, especially for boys, about playing with pain. Well, you know what? Speculating is not a strength game. This is not lifting up 500 pounds. You got to know what you're doing. And you're not, there's no difficult, you get no points in the markets for doing something difficult. You only get points in the markets for having the odds with you, no matter how you configure it. That's what pays off. Smart betting pays. Being a tough guy doesn't pay. Because the market's smarter than you, than any of us. I love some of your stories in the book because they're so honest. And I don't want to give away all the stories because listeners, you, you should definitely read the book. But there was a couple really challenging moments earlier in your career, pre-Mint. Um, this may have been 60s, 70s. And, you know, I remember one where, and probably some of this, these experiences led to the kind of worldview you have today. But the, I remember uh, a smile about one where you're on your knees in a stairwell saying, my God, please let me survive today in, in the financial markets. And I thought that was a, a beautiful, honest uh, retelling. Yes. And it was very funny because I was at age hence. There were a lot of Swiss, Swiss guys from Switzerland. And I literally... When I saw what had happened, this position, I just got on my knees and I said, God, I don't care if I lose all my money. Don't put me in deficit. I think this is corn futures, right? Yes, yes, it was actually. But, and it was two, two crops. We were wrong. And then it would limit up what I was short and limit down what I was long. So I got killed both ways. It's so funny. It makes my palms sweat reading this book because it reminds me of a couple painful trades I had early in my career. But the one that that was, I, I honestly do not think I could have recovered from, and it and it takes an enormous amount of, I think, character and just fortitude for you to survive. Was was the story about your partner putting or I think it was maybe not following the rules or putting you guys into a trade that then kind of wanted to hide for a little bit that that really I, I, I can you tell us about like how how you persevered because I, I don't think that I could have survived <laughs> that that moment and then go on to to do everything you did well first of all I survived as most people do from war because I had no choice so I had a family. I just started. And all of a sudden, I get to the office. My lawyer calls me up and says, Larry, come, come to my office. We were in the same building. And uh, there was my partner, who had been my partner for 10 years. Very, actually, very interesting guy. He was a scholarship stu student at Tufts. He looked like Omar Sharif. He had all the kinds of stuff that you would think he'd want. He got into the markets. Volker changed the deal. He never got out. 
I never have. I don't put in a buy without a sell. I don't put in a sell without a buy. That's the rule. He hid that. I was on the road. He hid, he hid that. All right. I was very sick. I was sick to my stomach. Uh, but I had to do this. I had a young family. I was desperate. We owed this one firm $3 million. And um, I go in. I say, see the head of the firm. And he comes at me very tough. And I put my hand and I said, oh, oh, hold on, hold on. Look at me. You can't kill me. I'm already dead. The only chance you have of getting your money back is me. So I think about this. And he, and he then, he said, yeah. He tried being tough. And I said, look, you really can't kill me. But maybe there's a way out. And it turned out I, I turned it around. Because I could not accept failure. Well, what was going to happen to my family? I supported my parents. I have to support my children. What was I going to do? I had to make sure that I made this right. So it's, would I like doing it? No. But I had to do it. I bought my parents a home in Florida in, in, in a development community that they wanted to be in. So they didn't have any money. And I had to work this out. So I had to go back to all the investors and explain to them why it was in their interest to put in more money. That was a tough trip. But you have to do it. If you don't have a choice, what are you going to do? I not only supported my children, I supported my grandmother, two grandmothers. I had to do what I had to do and make it work. And I don't think that was so heroic. It's what I had to do. If I would have had an easier way to do it, I wouldn't have done it. But I had to make it work. And I think if you were unlucky enough to be in that position, you would do the same. Because you have these obligations. And I was raised in a very family-centered, although not particularly rich, family. It's impressive, man, I tell you. You make it sound an easier recovery than probably it was at the time. I mean, it you know, I think a lot of people would not have would not have come out the other side like you did, but you know, so you went on to found Mint. And I think uh listeners, the younger the younger millennial crowd may not be familiar, but this is one of the at the time, I think one of the earliest systematic commodity trading advisors, we call them CTAs today or trend followers, um, one of the first, if not the first to hit a billion in assets, compounded in the 80s, double digits, I think even closer to 30%. What was the origin story there? You know, how, how'd you originally get started? I know you were doing a lot of hopping over the pond to, to London, but what's, tell us, uh, rewind, tell us a little bit about the origin uh, story meant. I want to do this very much. I wanted to do trend following, and I met some guys in London 
that a broker's firm, and I showed them how this would work. And I said, look, here's the simulations. Here's how we did it. This is the culture. And I went. It was very tough. But I said, look, if you don't help me, you're going to have a much bigger loss, and it won't be a loss you can use for taxes. So let's think how we can work this out. And they did. I went to 100 or so investors, and I virtually went to see every one of them. And those were not pleasant conversations. But I had to do it. I had to get, and then I went back. I made a couple of deals, and I got 100 grand. And then I started again. But uh, that, that loss, that did not dissuade me from trend following. He broke the rules. You know, trend following is having a great year in 2019, but you were early in this discussion of trend following. I would love to hear a little bit about, we have a lot of institutional professional allocators on this podcast. Talk to me about your discussions with investors over the years. I mean, it's obviously easier after you had an amazing run, but what were some of the traditional discussions of people that get it, whether it's endowments, foundations, institutions, pension funds, allocators, the, the big money, you know, because even in 2019, I feel like, you know, many professional investors just have a mental block when it comes to trend following as a strategy. Talk to us a little bit about the sort of interactions of the year, people that got it, people that didn't get it, all, all your Thoughts, thoughts on building a, a billion-dollar firm. People, if you, if you read the Bible, people love stories. They like them. That's how they, they build their life on stories or myths. I understood that you had to tell people a story. And once you got that, and that a lot of people were not going to like it, but when you explain the dire consequences of not going ahead, you find that people, common sense, which is not so common, wins out. So yeah, it, it, it was the worst year of my life. Except that one thing I had a a new baby. So that added my responsibility, but it was a, a joyous thing. So you just, you go do whatever you have to do because you have to. And you, you'll, you'll figure out ways to get it done. You, you mentioned narrative, and I think this is interesting because we talk to a lot of investors, and, and you have actually an example of this in the book where you say, Look, if you were to, to mask these asset classes, so stocks, and I think you use the SockGen trend following index, but um, if you were to just blind them and say, which would you prefer and how should you combine them? In many cases, the allocation to trend following type of strategies should be very high on the order of 20, 30, 40, 50%. 
you know, and, and we're probably the biggest outlier as far as I know as traditional asset managers with allocation to trend following. Ours is half. And so, but I don't think I've talked to an institution anywhere that's allocated more than 10%. That's not a trend following shop already, you know, that's say an endowment or an institution. What do you think the reluctance is from the allocator perspective of why, what, why they're in 2019 still reluctant to allocate to trend following sort of, sort of allocations? Because they're, they want to keep their highly paid jobs. And you think a lot of it's just career risk? Oh, career risk is a major risk for these people. They went out, they got a job. Let's say they went to graduate school. They don't want to take any risk. And they're getting paid several hundred thousand dollars a year. And probably if you look at their family background, they're very much in the minority. So they're making more money than anybody in their family made for a decade. Decades. They don't want to, they, they do not want to get off that gravy train. Because very few people are brave. They're just not. And the older you get, especially when you're in your child, when you're, you're bringing babies in the world, you, this other risk, is, this career risk is very big. You know, you're 25 or 30, and you've got children. So you do not have the discipline is very hard to follow. Plus, people don't really commit they're wrong anyway. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think to someone like you and I, it's an obvious takeaway. But I think for a lot of people, it's, it's strange. And I think the narrative, um, I was joking with Jerry Parker about it once, where I said that the problem was, Y'all back in the day named this managed futures <laughs> instead of something a little simpler, like just calling the whole thing trend following and that's that or uh, something maybe a little more marketable. I don't know, but it's funny to see the reluctance. But hey, it's having a great year this year uh, after a few fallow years of the last few. Uh, a couple more questions, Larry, that, that I think are really fun. One is you spend a lot of time talking about asymmetrical trades. And of course, you know, trend following being one, but you have arguably one of my favorite stories. I was also involved in, in selling a domain. I own the, the domain riskparity.com and sold that a few years ago to, a, to, I think, a Swiss hedge fund. But what I should have done is what you did. Do you want to tell the, the story about um, your, domain, uh, your domain selling expertise? Well, I, I wouldn't go as far as calling it an expertise. But I said I wanted to get a piece of the ongoing business or get out with it, you know, so they negotiated more money. I think you get rich on tails. So the longer you hold something, even an out-of-the-money option is very valuable, can be very valuable. Now, what happened was when I did that, got a couple of million dollars, which I gave to the people that worked for me. Because they stuck with me when there was no money at all. And to me, that was very worthwhile. They were true blue. And so when, when we had this offer for money, and I said, no, I want the tail. And then we negotiated that. 
It's funny because I was in kind of a no-lose situation because I hadn't wasn't making any money out of it. So I could just say, no, this is what I want. And I stuck it. I said, look, if, if this works, you're going to make a fortune. I want a piece. I love it. Listeners, you'll have to read the book to get the full story, but I'll give you a teaser, which is this involves the mint.com domain name and the, the beautiful lesson. Uh, we actually wrote an article about this recently, Larry, was that this decision to be paid in equity instead of cash is one that you look around and there's so many stories about how people get really wealthy. And I'm talking about celebrities, athletes, musicians who make look, let's be honest, they make great money, but we're talking life changing money in many cases where they made that. And, and it's everyone from Jay-Z to the guy who did the mural at Facebook to all these athletes today, Kevin Durant of the now Brooklyn Nets, you know, these guys either invested in companies or started brands and the mural Facebook guy, you know, exchanged something for actual ownership. And what you're talking about is something it's like the ultimate trend following it applies in life is that it's these huge outlier tail events that generate all the return and dominate it where if venture capital, they talk about the hundred baggers or stock market or in trend following, you know, it's the one position that returns hundreds and hundreds of percent versus all the very, very small losers. And this is just such a wonderful example of trend, trend following in life. That's not uh, something that's traditionally what people think of when they think of managed futures. No, but you're right. You absolutely, that's how you get rich. If you look at the numbers, if you're in a game where you can only make marginal money, that's where you're going to exist for the rest of your life. You have to have a way you're going to get out of that. And you have to adjust those rewards up. But why not? When you've lost a lot of money, there's not much that's going to happen. And, you, and you're not risking that a lot. Or you're risking something in the future. So I was able to make a lot of people who stuck with me, they got a, I gave them half the money. I gave another quarter of it to my children. And, you know, the people that worked with me, through very hard times. So yeah, that turned out to be its own tr good trend-following trade is, is sticking with Larry over the years. Has your philosophy changed at all, you know, is going from running other people's money to being a family office? I know you're involved with, with ISAM, if that's how you say it, and some other groups. But um, now that you're mostly family office, is, is any of the approach any different, any of the ways that you no. think about? <laughs> See, that's an easy Absolutely answer. Absolutely not. If, <laughs> if anything, it's hardened. I am a trend-follower. And I try to be Warren Buffett, and uh, and I actually got so good, I was buying his public companies before they were announced, because I spent a lot of time trying to crack his code, and I did somewhat. I was buying the same stocks, but I realized the leverage that he had that I didn't have. So I, I stick to, basically, I use a lot of options, and I'm always trying to make a big amount of money 
for a small risk. That's what I do. Let me ask you a question because the, the the Buffett philosophy actually of trend following, he ends up owning many of these positions for many multiple bagger status. And, you know, we spend a lot of time in this podcast talking about cutting your losses, which I think is super important and a lot of people don't want to do. But on the flip side, and I think equally as hard for a lot of people is when they have a winner, they want to sell it pretty quick. If you buy a stock and that sucker doubles, and, and for many people, that's, it may not be life-changing money, but it may be very significant money. They could go buy a house, they could do something, or even triples. To talk a little bit about how you have to have systematic rules, because the, the, the challenge is that those doubles or triples eventually become a 10 or 100 bagger. We had a great guest on here, Chris Meyer, who wrote a book called 100 Baggers, but would love to hear your thoughts on how sort of power laws of these massive returns in the in the very real seduction of trying to take profits too soon. You got to know the game you want to play. And then you got to know what the benefits of being in that game. So in reality, you want to mix bag games. Because what that money is doing is working for you. Right? You're not working for it. It's working for you. So if you're a little mathematically inclined, you create a bouquet of things that can make you a lot of money. Not, they, they all won't. It's exactly the math behind venture capital. But in trading, you can go through a database and see how a strategy worked. You literally can. Doesn't cost you any more money. And so you can craft a strategy. And I will tell you, I'm much wealthier than I ever thought I'd be based on those kinds of bets. And I, I, I must have some bets that are going to really pay off. And I know I'm going to stick, stick with them for a long time because they're high compounding, they're growing at compound rates, I can maybe understand them. So, for instance, I own thousands of shares of Amazon, because I understand what he's doing. The kinds of bad, he is not, Michael Cobell once wrote a great paper, and it said, Jeff Bezos, was a trend follower. He really is. He comes out with a product and he sells it into a network of people and if it doesn't work, the product's gone and he goes on to the next product. And that's how we, that's a very good way to get rich. And that's what you do. As we are starting to wrap a bow on the end of this decade, which is crazy to think, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm ready prepared to start saying it's 2020 yet, but you've been in the markets for multiple decades. Is there anything as you look into the future, set your eyes on the horizon, or even recently that has been particularly surprising to you or you think is interesting or things that people aren't thinking about? I mean, we live in a world today of negative interest rates. That's something that I think uh, has certainly surprised a lot of people. Any general thoughts on kind of the investment markets, the way the world looks uh, heading yeah. into the 2020s? Well, 
first of all, I know I can't predict well, but I can look at situations that I think over time will develop. And then I got to come up with maybe an option strategy where I can get a very big leverage bet with great asymmetrical play. And maybe I'll find four of those in a year. And if one of them comes up, my net worth goes up multiples. That's my real business. That's what we're here for. How do I source those bets? I find certain things work. New highs work. I look at the kind of option bets I have. So can I skew the return? That's important to me. It's not a good deal unless it's a great deal. And you want to apply very sensible, or what I call asymmetrical leverage. Several years ago, 20 years ago, I had, didn't have much money, and I went away with my children. I took them to, to the Caribbean. And I come back, and I'm working in the World Trade Center. And I always was one of these guys who slept late, but went home late. And I noticed that people were coming out, but there were a whole bunch of people coming into the building, and they were kind of raggedy clothes. And it was very, very cold. It was February. And I had had, I had gone to um, Canoe Bay with my family, and I happened to be trading from a telephone boat, right? They didn't even have phones in the rooms. So I'm trading from the phone boat, and I'm bored. My wife wants to have a vacation. I kind of like, all right, I had enough vacation. So I started to look at things, the Wall Street Journal. And I made a portfolio of only stocks that were making new highs. I had a quarter of a million dollars. Every year, I've given away 10% of that money. So I started with a quarter of a million dollars. Today, I have about five million bucks, maybe 10. Because I wanted, I was looking for those asymmetrical games where I can make a lot of money. And I, and not only what you're in, but how are you in? What risk do you have to take? That's very important. As, um, my assistant said to me one day, said, well, you're not the kind of guy with better delicatessen to win a pickle. And I thought that was, that was the truth. I would bet a pickle to win a delicatessen. Otherwise, I don't want to make the bet. Because good bets are hard to come by. And good bets are defined by what you're risking and, what, and, and the multiples that you can make. And every once in a while, they work. 
I think that's a great example. I was laughing as football fans will understand last weekend when I was watching Clemson play Carolina and Carolina almost upset Clemson and they Vegas had announced there was a better that bet something like $50,000 on uh, Clemson to win it, but it only paid like $1,000 if, if, if he did win. And these sort of short ball bets have no, no attractiveness to me. They're the opposite end of uh, betting the deli, I think. Um, but people, people do it for some reason. That's always, always a sure thing out there. I want to qu- ask a question, uh, Larry, you know, I, I think one of the biggest benefits of the book is not in my mind, necessarily all the trading wisdom which is fantastic but a lot of your life wisdom and so a question that i have for you that i struggle with a lot i'm a, i'm a new father i have a, a two and a half year old who woke me up this morning playing playing his guitar and i i think the thing that i really struggle with often is what you talk about in the book where so much of your life resiliency and worldview was built of one where you encountered challenges and hurdles and obstacles and struggle. And, uh, you know, as I think about someone who will eventually raise, you know, children to become adults, what do you think are ways to instill that into children that may not probably face the same challenges that you had, you know, that, that may have an easier life or easier uh, world today, albeit differently. Just any general thoughts on, um, you know, someone who who has, you know, you know, been through this all. Ways to think about it. Yeah. First of all, I will tell them that it's going to be tougher than they think, and they are very lucky because they're very unique and they're tough. I would build that into them. They're tough be it a boy or a girl, they can take it. It's hard to tell a two-year-old that, but it's a good thing to build up their character, their image of themselves. So when something bad happens, they can roll with the punches. That's what being tough is about. It's rolling with the punches. It doesn't say you're not going to get punched. You are going to get punched. I don't know. What do you have a boy? Mm-hmm. Well, he will be, I guarantee you, some little girl will turn him down for a date. He will not be a great athlete every play in every game. But he has to live with that. And go ahead to the next thing. The, what I love about trend following I was what they call a cross-the-board trader. I didn't care what I traded. If the odds were good, I put it in my deck. And then I roll on from one to the next thing. So that's what you've got to toughen them up. By loving them and telling them that they're tough. Because life is going to be tough. Especially for a young child who's just a baby. I mean, think of that. Think of, like, Mike, I remember my my youngest daughter turned to her mother and said, oh, we're out of cereal. Get some cereal. Right? And I said, okay, hold on. You know, about six miles from here, there are children who have no cereal. 
that's the complete thing. Not everybody lives with us like we do. We have a car and driver. We live in a 10,000 square foot house. Life has ways of throwing curveballs. And you got to duck. Or catch. Or something. But you have to do something. And you, Mr. Mr. My Little Baby, you're lucky. You're a tough kid. You're just, you, you can, I've seen you get up and fall, and you get up all the time laughing. And that's my gift to those children. Strength. Beautiful advice. Thank you. Larry, as we start to wind down, there's a question that we ask everyone on the podcast, and you may have mentioned it already, you may not have, but as you look back over your trading career, over the many decades spanning all sorts of probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of trades, long, short, everything in between, what's been the most memorable trade? Could be good, bad, in between, but what's the, what's the one that most uh, comes to mind? I went to buy a stock and forget what it was. And I decided that the price that they wanted for the stock was too high. So I did something very clever, and I sold a put at a price that I wanted. I was getting paid to actually buy that stock at that price. Well, about a year went by, I forgot about it. It was a small risk. And all of a sudden, I was up. $35,000 on about a $2,000 bet. And I remembered that. And and that also got me into the idea of asymmetrical bets. The big summary here is to to buy something and forget about it. (laughs) Yes, you do that. I was laughing about your comment about the the trade because we often say the the real benefit of private equity is it forces stock investors to actually be trend followers because they can't sell the positions they bought and they have to hold it for five, 10 years. And this actually illiquidity, what people call premium is actually a huge benefit because it keeps them from selling. So it's, 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 it reminds me of your, your bet that you're talking about on your trade. Uh, any chance you remember, any chance you remember what security it was? No, I can't. Oh. I, I, I wish, I wish I could, but I remember the, the, the run was a big run. And I, I really got me into this concept of asymmetrical returns. I invest basically have a very high risk-reward ratio, expected values. So I want to be in a position where something great can happen. And if I don't get that, I don't want to play. I love it. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Please check out the book, The Rule, How I Beat the Odds in the Markets and How You Can Too by our guest, Larry Height. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.